the single most important thing any of us can do, myself included, any of us, is stand up in the town square and speak out for democracy. Welcome to How We Win. All over this country of ours, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. Today, we are talking to the man who is on the front lines of election and voting rights litigation, fighting against the GOP's effort to suppress our votes and fighting for our democracy. He is the founder of Democracy Docket, and is truly the expert on election law. Of course, we are talking about Mark Elias. We're going to talk about the work he's doing on redistricting. We'll discuss the Supreme Court's anti-democracy decision on voting rights. And as always, how we can all support his important work. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. Win. So excited to talk to Mark Elias. You know, we hear from so many brilliant lawyers or uh, historians and people that give context to uh, what we're facing with the GOP's attack on voting rights and propagating Mm -hmm. this big lie. It's nice to get actually the guy, like the main guy, (laughs) you know, to talk to about this stuff, right? Uh, Yeah, this is one of those interviews where I'm like, (gasps) oh! (laughs) <laughs> oh, my gosh. As a political nerd, we're talking to a huge celebrity. <laughs> um, right. But he does he, he does such a, a great job. He's of just ex- like us, Mariah. He shops yeah, for groceries, you know. <laughs> <laughs> explaining things in an accessible way. You know, he talks about what he's getting at the market later. No, we don't get into all that. <laughs> but I would have been very interested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so we, I can't, we won't tease I can't what he's wearing, but um, but it was. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I can't wait for people to hear that super important uh, conversation. And he's got some really great marching orders for us. So that's right. Something to look forward to, listeners. <laughs> but first, before that, let's talk a, a little bit about the week. What's going on? Uh, what's on your radar? Gosh, uh, crickets in D.C. this week because it's a holiday week and uh, Congress isn't in session. So I've taken the time to read some really interesting profiles on on some Republicans. Oh, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to first talk about, uh, and they're both from the New York Times, um, Congressmember Adam Kensinger from Illinois, has a, a really great interview. Where, so, so this is like the one Republican who is willing to say, like, what happened on January sixth is insane, right. and it's Trump's fault, and 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 he's willing to admit that some of his colleagues were, in all likelihood, complicit in it. Um, and so, gosh, it's informative and instructive. Interesting. He's not going to last in the Republican Party with that kind of talk. <laughs> he makes sense. He's really reasonable. He wants to hold people accountable. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I I will. Say, and so the other piece is he was raised evangelical. And, um, you know, for some folks on the right, uh, the church and religion 
is deeply entwined with what's going on in, in politics right now. Um, so, you know, it, 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 very interesting perspective. I mean, I wanted to like what he said about um, the Republicans are going to come into power at some point. So Democrats don't want to have burned all these bridges and called all of them insane hmm. because we, they, you know, we'll all have to work together at some point. And, you know, you know, Democrats have to look for, you know, the moderate Republican they can reach a hand out to and vice versa. But then you have people like his colleague, Congressmember Paul Gosar, who hmm. is just blatantly like helping uh, alt-right white supremacist people fundraise. And the party won't condemn that. And so right. it makes sense that they need to work together. We all need to work together. But in practice, I'm not going to reach a hand out to a party that that won't condemn someone buddy-buddying with, yeah. uh, with white supremacy. Exactly. How do you not call that out? How do you not say what is you know, say what it is. And as you said, when they're actively supporting and fundraising uh, around white supremacy, uh, how do you not step up and fight back against that and say that loud? Because we have to. We have a, a moral responsibility to. It's, it's, it goes way beyond civility between two opposing viewpoints. This is um, – the Republicans are, are supporting this insurrection. Six months since the in- insurrection now. And uh, we had mm-hmm. – uh, and I hate to give her more airtime. I know we all love to have a villain to um, to talk about. But Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, just came out with another <sighs> statement uh, about Georgia um, and how Georgia will be overturned and Trump won Georgia and there's all these fraudulent votes. Still propagating this big lie. Anyway, we're going to get into a lot of that with Mark Elias, so I don't want to belabor that point right now. But mm-hmm. also worth mentioning um, that Adam Kinzinger was on uh, No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen to Mm -hmm. plug another podcast just this last Sunday. It was his first Republican guest. Very interesting interview and uh, an even better uh, episode because Mariah (laughs) and I were on there talking about uh, the podcast. So if if you didn't get enough of us this week, then check out um, No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, even if you have had enough with us, you should. It's a good listen. You should. You should still listen to this podcast. I like answering <laughs> questions instead of asking questions. Sometimes yeah, it's fun. The other thing that I I want to talk about a little bit is um, the shootings over the fourth, and mm. um, there were uh, this is seen in an article. At least 150 people were killed by gun violence in more than 400 shootings across the country during the 4th of July weekend. This bit of news popped up on my daughter's feed last Mm -hmm. night. As we were going to bed, she knocked on the door and came in and said, "Um, I don't don't want to go to bed on a sad note, but I just want to let you know I just saw this news that 150 people were killed over the weekend in various shootings. Mm -hmm. And... um, My reaction to it was to immediately look for this news story, which I could not find anywhere. And this morning I had to dig into CNN and actually do a search for the headline to find this news story. And what I said to Lucy was, uh, my daughter was, yeah, every 4th of July people are shooting off guns and they're drinking too much and there's more violence and people get killed. But the fact that this news story 
was nowhere to be found, that over the weekend 150 Americans were killed by guns is unacceptable. Uh, the fact that we normalize this kind of gun violence still in our country is absolutely unacceptable. So I want to highlight this. We have so much work to do. There's a lot of important issues, but this fight for uh, uh, for common sense gun reform that 90% of Americans uh, – including Republicans are in favor of, uh, needs to be more vocal. We really need this to be in the forefront. We can't just let 150 deaths over the weekend uh, be a footnote in a CNN article. Mm. Um, that's heartbreaking, and I can't imagine – I mean, the the statistics are heartbreaking. Every incident is heartbreaking, um, and to have found out about it in the way that you did is um, – you know, it's like you said, we're too used to it. Like, oh, yeah, it's the 4th of July. You yep. know, every, like, it gets more violent. Um, that That's not acceptable. No. Um, and I'm really, I'm really sorry that, that Lucy had that experience. Lucy and all the, the young people across the country are having that experience. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears from that, you know, sad but important note and talk mm -hmm. about... Uh, this week's Hero of the Week. I picked the Hero of the Week this week, and it's actually an institution. Howard University is my Hero of the Week. Go, Howard. Yeah. Uh, so this is a historically black college uh, in Washington, D.C., and today they announced that Nicole Hannah-Jones and ta Coates are joining their faculty to help educate the next generation of black journalists. Um, these appointments are possible because of uh, nearly $20 million donated by four donors. And if you've been following the Nicole Hannah-Jones saga, she was offered a job at UNC not too long ago, but was initially denied tenure, right. um, reportedly under pressure from uh, a donor who disagreed with some of the content that she put into the 1619 project that she did for the New York Times. Uh, if you have not read the 1619 Project, please read it. Um, but this donor really disagreed with the, the implication that uh, the founders of this country really wanted to uphold the institution of slavery, um, which they did, of course. Um, so uh, UNC allowed that donor to pressure them into denying her tenure. Um, and when faculty and students at the school pushed back, they offered it eventually, and she's turned down that job in favor of, of this one at Howard. Um, this is super important, uh, and, and I will say everybody, I'm sure, has read ta Coates. He is one of our great thinkers of, of the day. Having uh, more diversity of race, experience, gender in newsrooms, assessing events with race as a context is so important for journalism today and moving forward that these these are really landmark announcements for, for this faculty at Howard. So that's my hero of the week. I love that An institution, Howard University in D.C. is our hero of the week. All right, let's talk about our reasons for hope. Thank <laughs> you. 
I got a sneak peek at your reason for hope and I love it. <laughs> yeah. So um, my reason for hope is uh, we over the weekend actually went to a movie theater and saw um, Questlove's directorial debut, the drummer for The Roots, Summer of Soul. It was spectacular. It gave mm -hmm. me so much hope. Um, actually, uh, a lot in the context of what you were just talking about um, with uh, the 1619 Project, critical race theory, and people who want to uh, suppress that, people who don't want uh, the truth about uh, our country, who built it, uh, what people have faced uh, in, in our country to, uh, to be taught in schools. This is a story of a concert that happened in 1969 in Harlem, the Harlem Cultural Festival. And uh, they actually shot it all for a what was going to be either a movie or a TV special or something. And all that footage just languished in a uh, basement somewhere because mm -hmm. uh, it was suppressed really uh, no they the networks didn't want to put it out they tried to sell it as uh, black Woodstock because mm -hmm. it happened the same year as Woodstock and um, it got very little attention but it's out you can't you can't stop something that's powerful you can't stop something that people organize around and um, Clearly, you can't stop Questlove either. Uh, it is such a cool documentary. Great footage of Sly and the Family Stone. That's just awesome. Mm -hmm. The Staple Singers, uh, Mahalia Jackson, just like close up of her uh, incredible goddess, just unsurpassed voice. Like really, once she sings, everyone should just stop. No one else gets to sing after she sings. But, <laughs> but they did. Um, uh, a very young uh, Gladys Knight, uh, who was incredible. A 19-year-old Stevie Wonder on the cusp mm -hmm. of coming out of Motown and, uh, and coming into his own creative uh, vision. It was just spectacular footage uh, and really contextualized around the civil rights uh, movement yeah. and what was going on in 1969. So it's a reason for hope. I guess it's more of a film review that I just gave it, but um, <laughs> either either way, that's my reason for hope. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's a music documentary and a political documentary in a lot of ways. And it's streaming on Hulu. So I haven't been to a movie theater in like two years. <laughs> um, but the baby and I watched it, uh, the morning after it came out okay. and he loved it. He was rocking out. So yeah, highly recommend people go see it in the, probably much better in a theater, but not too bad streaming either. Watch it on Hulu because that's the easiest way to get it if, if that's how you're going to do it. And I'm not sure where it's playing theatrically, but seeing it in a theater was awesome. It was awesome. I'm sure. What's your reason um, for hope? Mine's actually kind of similar. So there's um, a, a new focus on, on civic education for kids that I'm super excited about that I'm seeing in a couple of different places. Ben Sheehan, who we've interviewed on this podcast, um, has, yeah, he's great. He has a kid's book coming out that explains the Constitution. Um, and then We the People, uh, an animated video series uh, came out on Netflix this last weekend, produced by the Obamas, among others. But it's like a modern take on Schoolhouse Rock, aimed at kids, um, about you know getting engaged in making our country uh, as inclusive and great as it possibly can be. So all this, all this content is giving me a reason for hope. 
lots of good stuff to watch. So we're we're mm-hmm. just doing yeah reviews here for, in our reasons for hope <laughs> section. But that's that's I love the um, the civics for kids stuff because it's really for you know quote unquote kids. But when you break down stuff lessons for quote unquote I'm doing air quotes listeners. Uh, <laughs> you know, for kids, then that's really helpful to some adults who really don't know the basics uh, of the Constitution and civics, too. Maybe you knew it at one point, but it's been buried uh, on all the other important stuff filling up. There is a lot of Bachelor and Bachelorette (laughs) stuff to watch. You can't you can't have time for everything. So some bite size. I know a lot about Matt James, but in any event, <laughs> next week we'll be talking about Fast and Furious 9, so be sure to come back for that review. <laughs> no spoilers. Uh, Mariah <laughs> liked it. I'd not so much, but I'm not. we'll get into the reasons why next week. <laughs> uh, before we do that, let's talk about this week's to-do list. So two things uh, to do this week. Uh, One, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, and that's Mm -hmm. uh, to attend a weekend of action. This weekend, it is here, our first Swing Left weekend of action focused on Virginia, July 10th through 11th. Go to swingleft.org, sign up for an event near you, join up with the group. You can do something virtually, too, on your own. But um, Mm -hmm. let's make this a big blowout. Let's see what the energy is right now uh, with our volunteers to jump in and help protect this important trifecta in Virginia. It's go time. It's go time. You can go canvas and knock on doors. You can go phone bank. You can go write letters. It is go time. Lots to do. And then we also have talked a lot about the For the People Act and the importance of getting it passed. Some of these things feel like they're up to Congress, but your members of Congress listen to you. And when they see people rallying and mobilizing around something, they pay more attention. So there are For the People Act rallies coming up. That's right. Um, important to use your voices. This, uh, they're actually happening right now, and they're going on all this week. So go to deadlinefordemocracy.org and find an event. We will have the link to that on our uh, podcast page. Uh, we'll also have the link to uh, places where you can make phone calls and, and get involved uh, right through our voting rights page on Swing Left. So we'll have that page. We'll have that link and the deadline for democracy link at swingleft.org slash podcast. Great. But first, we want you to listen to this incredible interview that we did with Mark Elias. Mark Elias is an attorney specializing in election law, voting rights, and redistricting. He served as general counsel for Hillary Clinton's and John Kerry's presidential campaigns. In 2020 and 2021, on behalf of the Biden campaign and the DNC, he oversaw the response to lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign contesting the election results. In 2020, he also founded Democracy Docket, a website focused on voting rights and election litigation in the United States. Mark Elias, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I was just saying before we got started, it is nice to have the guy on to talk about all this stuff that's going on right now. You've been at the center of a lot of this uh, major election litigation for the last 20 plus years. Um, 
When did you get started working on voting rights and, and what made you choose this as a focus of your practice? You know, it's a really good question. I graduated law school in, um, in 1993 and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I sometimes joke I went to a small liberal arts college because I didn't know what I wanted to be. <laughs> then I went to law school because I didn't know what I wanted to be. <laughs> um, and when I came out of law school, um, we were in the middle of a significant um, transition in American politics. It was the beginning of the Newt Gingrich era. Mm -hmm. um, which really draws a direct through line to the Tea right. Party and then to Donald Trump. Um, so in many respects, I got into this area because I care about um, democracy and justice. And that was at a time when those issues were being raised, particularly in the legal process, um, in new and expanding ways. Um, you know, to put it to put it in perspective, um, you know, in in 2001, you had uh, or in, yeah, in 2001, you had Bush versus Gore, which was at that time seen as the largest um, and most expansive recount that we would ever see in a presidential race. And then <laughs> you compare that to 2021 and it looks or 2020 and it looks like child's play. So yeah. it's it's um, uh, it's just been an explosion in the area of law. And I happen to be sort of sitting in the right place at the right time. Were you prepared for what happened after the presidential election last year? Did you kind of know what Trump's lawyers might be planning on, on doing based on your professional knowledge? So yes and no. Um, so I early on in my career um, had a took to a real keen interest in post-election um, processes and litigation, recounts, contests and the like. So, um, you know, I, 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 I was prepared in the sense that um, I was tasked with and would be ready to deal with post-election issues that come up, which is a certain kind of preparation, because if you think about it, um, the whole purpose of election day is to kind of be the culmination, right? It is, right. it is. And so it's a weird business that I'm in, in that election night is not the end. It's actually kind of the beginning of that phase. Right. Um, so in that sense, I was prepared. I was not prepared for the Republican Party to completely collapse itself hmm. behind the big lie in Donald Trump. You know, I thought I thought Trump would be irresponsible. I didn't think he would get very far in being irresponsible. <laughs> um, I did not anticipate that literally the rest of the Republican Party would just utterly collapse like lapdogs behind him. Yeah, I think a lot of us were uh, <laughs> naively hoping for uh, you know a few moderate Republicans or statesmen or something, anything from from these guys. So. The word I I I clung to because I thought there was something to it was not statesmen. I didn't think there were many of those in the Republican Party. Moderates, hmm, don't think there are many of those in the Republican Party. The Democrats love the idea that there are moderate Republicans, but then we go, but then we go looking for them. Uh, Hello. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> what I thought we might find, though, were institutionalists. Yeah. Right. You can be a partisan Republican and still be an institutionalist, and still believe that um, the institutions of the smooth transfer of power. Um, are important, even though you are 
a partisan Republican. And the institutionalists that we were told about, heck, we were told Mitch McConnell was an institutionalist. Right. Like that whole thing was the was was nonsense also. And that was I did not anticipate. Given that, was there ever a moment um, where you got nervous and 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 thought, oh, maybe because because that's what everyone said during Trump's entire administration. One man can't take all this down. The institutions will hold. Was there ever a point where you were like, oh, this is we're, we're getting into dangerous territory? So yes and no. Number one, I never thought that we were going to lose. Like there was mm-hmm. not a day that went by in which I thought to myself, God, this lawsuit they filed, this is really good. Mm, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, like it ever, it, it, and I don't just mean that because of the quality of lawyering. I mean, because like, like Joe Biden had won in a relative landslide. I hate to use that term because it's kind of a weird term. It means a lot of different things, but, but it never, there was never a day where I was worried that Joe Biden after the, after, you know, two days after the election where I thought, okay, there's any way to reverse this election. Just to put it in perspective, by the way, I did Al Franken's recount in 2009 right. and I spent six months and $13 million to net a thousand votes. Now it, that now that thousand votes was worth it because it flipped the results, right? It flipped yeah. it from losing to winning. But I knew that the margins we were talking about here were not, were just not going to happen, you know. Like it, it, so, so that I never worried about. The moment that I had the kind of like, oh my god, that moment was when the state of Texas filed a lawsuit to throw out the election results in. Um, four other states, right. and then 18 other states signed on to it, and then 126 Republican members of Congress signed on to it. And that's when I realized, okay, this is actually a really, really big problem. Not because the Supreme Court's going to do it, but mm-hmm. because we're now looking at a, a, a overwhelming majority of Republican elected officials who have a dog in this fight siding with the big lie. Mm-hmm. And siding with throwing out election results in four states, including in some instances, members of Congress seeking to throw out the election results in their own states. Right. Yeah. Where yeah. they had won. Where they had won. Them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which which always seemed to me, you know, it's one of the things I wrote about this actually on Democracy Docket in December. It seemed to me that we ought to have a rule that if you seek to to invalidate an election where you won, you shouldn't be seated. Right, <laughs> like, right. Like that makes sense. <laughs> if you're legitimately concerned that the election uh, had serious fraud, then before you're seated, you'd want to make sure that that was uh, appropriate. Yeah, so if you're a Republican member of Congress in Pennsylvania and you think that your election results were wholesale tainted by fraud, how do you get seated? Yeah. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, and we've just have the the six month anniversary of the insurrection right now, and uh, and despite that, we still have uh, the same Republicans and more uh, peddling this this big lie, which is uh, oh, it's gotten worse. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I calculate this every so often, um, and 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 tweet it out in in so um, hundred and twenty six Republicans in the House signed on to the big lie uh, in their brief. The insurrection happens that night. 126 jumps to 139. So Republicans actually gained 13 votes after the insurrection. And then, of course, we just saw in the January 6th Commission 190 Republicans in the House vote against the the January 6th Commission. So right. think about how that's trending. 
Not a good trend line. No, that's frightening. You founded the website Democracy Docket in 2020, uh, which is a great, uh, really incredible resource to follow voting rights and election litigation. Um, Why did you create it? And and what do you want people to take from that site? Yeah, so I created it for a couple of reasons. Um, One was because I thought that in an age where there is a lack of trust in information, that there ought to be a place accessible to everyone for um, information about uh, court, what's going on in the courts around voting rights. You know, so rather than there being a dispute between you and some um, MAGA guy about what a court did or didn't do, hmm. there ought to be a place where you could go and you could read the briefs filed by both sides and you could read the court decisions. And so that at least we are not you know, we're, we have basic source materials. Now we try to curate those materials so we keep out stuff that will just clutter up, but we try to present both sides briefs and then the court decisions in important cases involving voting and democracy. The second reason why I, I um, uh, created it was because I thought there, there needed to be, and I was surprised when I looked around and there wasn't, a place where people who want to read about information just around voting and democracy, not around progressive politics generally, not about electoral politics generally, but just around this set of issues could go. And that's what Democracy Docket is. It publishes content every day uh, during the week, multiple times a day. We'll put out alerts on things that are going out and it puts out good, thoughtful um, pieces by you know people. We've had several US senators write pieces. We've had Recording artists uh, uh, give her their perspective on democracy. Stacey Abrams, uh, the Secretary of State from um, uh, from Colorado, just wrote something. Lena Hidalgo, who is uh, the woman who is the um, uh, county judge for Harris County that had all those innovative rules around voting, she wrote something. So we try to give a, a perspective. It's all from a progressive standpoint. The case materials we post are not. The case materials we post are just- Just the materials. The by both, are by both yeah. sides in the court decisions. But we try to be a place where people who want to understand what's going on in voting rights, redistricting, and democracy can go and, and read what different people are saying. We have an explainer series that is also nonpartisan where we just mm-hmm. explain. You know, we did an explainer on what is ranked choice voting. You know, so that people, yeah. when they're reading the coverage, and um, we're going to have one coming up, I think, on Friday on uh, what is um, what are special sessions, right? Because people are he- reading about the idea there's going to be a special session in Texas around voting uh, rules. So, what is a special session? So, we have an explainer series that that's uh, that's just informational, and like I said, we offer opinion and commentary. So many great ways to educate yourself on all of this. And speaking of articles that you uh, wrote last week marked the 50th anniversary of the passing of the 26th Amendment. Um, Most of us uh, who dig into the amendments, most of us amendment nerds really think of that as uh, the amendment that lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. But you put out an article on Democracy Docket that talks about how it more broadly protects voting rights. Without getting too into the weeds on it, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So what the 26th Amendment says Uh, What the 26th Amendment does not say is anyone 18 years of age can vote. What it says is that you cannot discriminate in voting based on age for anyone who's over 18. So it's actually more powerful than simply giving the right to vote. It is also protects 
young voters from age discrimination in the way in which rules are constructed. So we filed the lawsuit in 2018 because Florida had a rule that said you could have a early voting center in any public building, except on a college or university campus. <laughs> okay, so you could have it in any any public building, any town hall, any uh, uh, community center that was owned by the uh, by the public, but it couldn't be in the student unions at Florida State University and University of Florida. Mm -hmm. That was struck down under the 26th Amendment because it was, in fact, a way of treating young voters, in that case, college age voters, right. worse off than their peers who were not who were not who were older. Uh, uh, and not on college campuses. So it's a very important amendment um, to the Constitution um, and uh, one that uh, I've been very interested in my entire life, my entire, going back to when I was in college, um, and now one that I have the pleasure to be able to litigate over. Uh, last week, we also saw the Supreme Court uphold two suppressive Arizona voting laws. Can you talk about the implications of that decision on your work um, and the suit that was just filed by the Justice Department against Georgia as well? Yeah. So the court cases, the, the Arizona cases, which go by the name Brnovich, which is who's the plaintiff, um, the attorney general of Arizona, who was not the plaintiff, I'm sorry, was the, uh, brought the appeal to the Supreme Court. What Brnovich said was that um, a challenge to voting laws brought under section two of the Voting Rights Amendment, I'm uh, sorry, section two of the Voting Rights Act um, would be held to a tougher standard of proof. So going back a little bit, um, there had been two main operative parts of the Voting Rights Act that you heard people litigating under to protect minority voting rights. One was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was right. effectively gutted in Shelby County. And that that was an enormous loss. Yeah, um, That's not to minimize Brnovich, but that Shelby County was what allowed Arizona to pass this law even in the first place, what allowed Georgia to even pass this law in the first place. If we had had Section 5, neither of those laws would have taken effect. Yeah. Okay. Just took all the, teeth, two, all the teeth just uh, removed from the Voting yeah, Rights Act, basically. Yeah. Section 2 is a provision of the Voting Rights Act that has mostly been used uh, in the redistricting arena, and thankfully nothing in the opinion deals with uh, – undermines that. But it deals with nationwide. It deals with laws that have the, pur the purpose or effect of undermining minority voting strength, essentially, okay, to put it in, in really plain English. Um, there, so there are two kinds of cases you can bring under Section 2. One are intent cases, right? The legislature intended, had the purpose of discriminating against minority voters. The other is an effects case, right? It has the effect of doing so. What the Supreme Court in Brnovich did was severely limit the ability to prove an effects case. Mm -hmm. They didn't say the effects case, the effects prong is unconstitutional, like they did in or in Shelby County, but they interpreted it as a matter of statutory law in a really narrow way that's really harmful to the interests of minority voting rights. They didn't say as much about the intent factor. So, so what I'd say about Georgia is, for example, the Department of Justice brought an intent claim in Georgia. I expect that the Department of Justice will continue to litigate that claim. We brought a Voting Rights Act claim. There are about five Voting Rights Act claims in Georgia. I expect those to go forward. Some of them will have to be modified be, uh, to meet the new effects test. But the intent claims, where the intention of the law is to target Black voters in the case of Georgia, those should uh, should should be able to proceed. And lest anyone think that that doesn't happen today. They're wrong. 
The fact is, in 2013, the Fourth Circuit found that the Republican legislature in uh, North Carolina targeted African-Americans with, quote, surgical precision. Right. Okay. Is there anything about the Republican Party today in Georgia that makes you think that they are somehow more concerned with minority voting rights? Anything about the current Republican Party that makes you think, well, geez, they they wouldn't want the bad optics of it, or <laughs> they would never they would never uh, they would never allow themselves to do such a thing? I, I think I think that that the uh, that we're going to continue to see cases under Section Two of the Voting Rights Act go forward and prevail in states like Georgia, but understand that what the Supreme Court did is very, very harmful to minority voting rights and therefore the cause of justice overall. And the good news about it is Congress can change it. Yeah. Right. The Supreme Court just was interpreting the law. Now, I think they interpreted it wrongly. I think that they were cynical in their interpretation. But Congress could spell out the right interpretation of the law, and then we all proceed forward. You're talking about the For the People Act, of course, and other... Uh... Other... For the People, John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act. Yeah, those two. H.R. 1, yeah. which is uh, for the People Act, and H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act. Yeah. It's good to hear that, actually. I I uh, thank you for explaining that decision because I did think it went more into the intent and would really be harmful to um, the Justice Department's cases against Georgia and where I anticipate other cases will yeah. – there'll be other cases. The, the, other, the other thing to keep in mind, and again, none of this is to minimize the impact of the case because the case is a terrible, terrible decision, but it also doesn't apply to the various – challenges that are made under the federal and state constitutions, right? So most challenges to election laws are not actually brought under the Voting Rights Act. They're brought either under state constitutional provisions or federal constitutional provisions. And that those, of course, are not uh, affected by this court's decision. So for example, and again, not to put this on equal footing, because the, the Brnovich case was the big case of the week. But on Friday, you know, we won a longstanding case before the New Hampshire Supreme Court, um, striking down a a voter registration provision that targeted young voters, targeted college voters in New Hampshire. You know, people don't know this, but 10% of registered voters in New Hampshire are college students. Hmm. It's actually got the highest percentage of of, of, of potential of, of, of voting age population uh, in the country as a percentage of their total voting population. Hmm. Um, and that was under the state constitution. So we'll continue to see cases under the state constitution, under federal constitution, First Amendment, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, unaffected by Section 2. But Brnovich was a terrible decision. Well, uh, let's talk more about Democracy Docket and your Democracy Docket Action Fund and the work you're doing on redistricting, because um, I'm very excited that Swing Left is uh, supporting that work. Our, uh, Me too. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it, it, our, we have our – for those of you who don't know about Blueprint, I think most of our listeners do, but we have a, a really great way to donate uh, to key campaigns and also organizations on the ground. And this quarter, we are supporting uh, the Action Fund, Democracy Docket Action Fund which is just so important to all, all the work we're doing. Um, you've talked about a four-part litigation strategy for your work on redistricting. Can you describe your strategy? And then, of course, how, how can we help? Yeah. So first of all, you know, Swing Left is an amazing organization. I, I actually remember, uh, I think Swing Left was launched on like a Wednesday or a Thursday. <laughs> and that weekend, it just took off. Yeah. I mean, it just exploded. And and I actually talked to someone from 
swing left that following week. Hmm. And it was like, whoa, like, like this thing is like everywhere. Um, and since then, it has grown into such an important um, piece of the democratic and progressive ecosystem and infrastructure that it's hard to believe there was a time before it. Uh, so it does tremendous work. And the blueprint effort is really important to organizations like Democracy Doc and Action Fund. So we talked about Democracy Doc at the website, but separate from that is a fund that people um, can contribute to uh, mm -hmm. that helps support voting rights and redistricting litigation, right? So it helps actually fund the legal cases um, that, that are going forward. And in the redistricting arena, people don't, don't always, because it only comes up every 10 years, people don't focus on the importance of redistricting. And it is critically important. Yeah. One way you can be undemocratic is you can prevent people from voting, right? We're all aware of that. Second way, which that's the Republican really, Party platform right now. That's so, the Republican yeah. Party. <laughs> that's right. That would be the only plank of the Republican Party. Right. The second way you can do it, which we also see the Republican Party embracing, is you can change the rules of how ballots count, right? Are the ballots having voted, are the ballots counting? But, you know, an even more pernicious way in some things is you choose the lines that people vote under, and therefore you allow the politicians to gerrymander themselves so that really there aren't competitive elections because the voters are being chosen by the politicians rather than the other way around. And so to attack redistricting, which is about to start, right, because it happens every 10 years, uh, the data was delayed because the Trump administration tried to sabotage the census. That data will come out in August and then again in September, mm -hmm. and you will see a huge amount of litigation. And there are basically four kinds of cases that you need to look at. Number one are so-called impasse cases. This is where the Democrats and the Republicans don't control the process entirely, um, but there's a mixed government. So you have a Democratic governor and Republican legislature or a Republican governor and Democratic legislature, what have you. And in those instances where the political branches are unable to agree on a map, the court draws one. So we've already filed litigation in three states because we anticipate deadlocks in those three states. Okay, there will be additional states that'll have deadlocks, and there'll be additional um, uh, there'll be additional need for so-called impasse litigation. That's okay. critically important because they're the courts drawing the map. So being in court and presenting a good case is important. Okay. The second um, are cases where uh, where the Republicans draw maps and they violate Section Two. Right? We just we just talked about right. that. Right. So th that will go to court. The third is where Republicans will racially gerrymander the cases, right? Or partisan gerrymander. They will draw the lines in a way that's impermissible either under federal law or state law. And then finally, there are cases where um, Republicans will attack maps because they don't like them, either because they've been drawn fairly by an independent commission or because they are seeking to undermine a fair district process. I expect we'll see that, for example, in Florida or in North Carolina or in Pennsylvania, but all of which have fair district requirements in their laws, but we may see Republicans attack them. And in those cases, we will need to defend um, those fair district principles. Wow. You have your hands full. That is a lot of work. <laughs> it is. But thanks to the good work of people like you and Swing Left and Blueprint, uh, it's great to have um, strong partners in this effort. Absolutely. Um a little earlier, we talked about what gave you some anxiety in the last year or so. Um, but now we want to end on a more positive note and talk about what gives you the most hope for our future. Look, what gives me the most hope is that uh, that 
people are engaged around democracy as a central issue for how they think about citizenship and how they think about voting. And that is a transformative principle that means that we will see higher rates of participation in the process. You know, we, we saw unprecedented levels of turnout among black voters, among young voters um, and others in, for example, the Georgia runoff elections. Well, imagine if we had those rates of participation overcoming barriers to voting in every state in the country, including states like Arkansas, which has the lowest, uh, second lowest voter turnout in the country and where African-Americans have an 11 point disadvantage to whites in Arkansas. We're suing Arkansas hmm. over that. If we can take from the effort of Republicans to make voting harder and to put barriers up, if we can take from that and focus on this as a central organizing principle in our campaigns and then a central governing principle, and then, then we can make real change. We can make voting easier for everybody. We can increase voter participation and we can be a better democracy. If we don't do that, we're gonna slide backwards. Like I don't think there's any holding in place where we are, but mm -hmm. I'm optimistic at the level of, of interest and intensity that there is around this issue. It is not fair that we ask black voters and young voters election after election to wait in hours and hours long lines. You know, in Georgia, we sued Georgia over their long lines in the primary. And here's what the data showed. If you were in Metro Atlantic six counties and you were in a precinct that was 90% or more registered African-American, your average wait at the poll closing was 51 minutes. Do you know what it was mm -hmm. if you were in a precinct that was 90% or more registered voters were white? Six. Six. Wow. Yeah. So now you understand why there's a ban on food and water in line, because when you're waiting in line for six minutes, you're not actually waiting in a line. Right. Yeah. Right. So so it's unfair that we expect that differential. But if we can, for one more election, maybe overcome it and then have a Senate that will pass the For the People Act, hopefully they do this cycle. Like, I'm not giving up. I'm still cheerleading. <laughs> yeah. <for it. laughs> but if we can get it so that the House and the Senate will pass these bills and make it a more perfect democracy, a better democracy, a closer along the spectrum of of where we ought to be then that gives me hope um, because I know that there are people like you committed to that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your tireless and essential work on this front. And and you're right. I feel like uh, our our work is on three fronts uh, in Congress to pass the For the People Act and legislation like that. There's the work that volunteers and activists are doing on the ground to make sure that, as you said, whatever the obstacles are to vote, we are making sure that we meet those voters and help them overcome those obstacles. And then there's the pivotal work that you're doing in the courts pushing back against all of the suppression legislation so we're a good team I, i'm hopeful yeah, too and, and let me let me say a word about the the volunteers and the activists because the question i get more than any other is what can i do right they're like you're doing all this stuff mark what can i do mm -hmm. and what i tell them is that the single most important thing any of us can do myself included any of us is stand up in the town square and speak out for democracy and it sounds really simple um, but it's really, really important. Now, for some people, their town square is for you. It's a big podcast that people listen to. For other people, their town square may just be their friends and their family on a text chain. It may be their Facebook friends. It may be something they post on LinkedIn. But we need everyone to speak out on this issue.
everyone, you cannot turn away from the attacks on voting and democracy. If you see that there are people trying to make voting harder for Black people, for, for Latinos, for young voters, you need to stand up in your town square and say, this is not okay. Don't turn away from it. Don't, don't act like, well, since, it, since I'm not Black, I'm not young, and I'm not Latino, it doesn't affect me. Everyone needs to stand up and put a moral uh, responsibility on the people who are doing this because it's wrong. And if we're not able to all say in uncomfortable situations to our uncle who voted for Donald Trump, to our neighbor who has a MAGA sign up, if we're not comfortable to stand up and say, this is not okay, we need everyone to participate in our democracy. And if you're not for everyone participating in our democracy, then I'm not for you. If we can't get that, then we're not going to succeed. But I have confidence that because of the great work that Swing Left does and the amazing volunteers and activists that you have as part of the organizations that we will work because people are standing up and saying that taking away other people's right to vote is not okay. It's morally wrong and it needs to be opposed. Well, thank you so much for for that reminder that, um, you know, the, the work that you do is very specialized and special. But what you just described, I think so many people relate to that feeling and, and, and you've given us doable marching orders. So well, let's thanks. get out there and do it. <laughs> let's go. Thank you so much, let's Mark. Go. Really appreciate the conversation. Anytime. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and stay engaged. Are you standing with us to help protect our democracy? Tweet to us at Steve and at Mariah underscore Craven and let us know how. Subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share our show on your social media. And of course, sign up to volunteer at swingleft.org. As always, we really appreciate you being here with us this week, and we'll be back with more next Wednesday. See you then.